So for the past three Sabbaths that I have spoken, I have been talking about the book of Jonah. I was waiting for a response, but it's okay. Okay. So we're talking about Jonah, and we've been going through the book of Jonah. Uh, and if you guys remember, we've been talking about the idea that we have somewhat been brainwashed by media uh, of the story of Jonah. And we see Jonah as this heroic, this wonderful guy, right? Uh, and I call it like the veggie tale kind of... Uh, uh, phenomenon where we see the story of Jonah in light of the, the cartoon, right? We see a big fish swallowing Jonah, and that's what we remember most of the time. And when the reality is, uh, the fish is only a small part of the book of Jonah. And so we're going through uh, the book of Jonah, clearing away the vegetation to see really the bigger picture of what this book is all about. And I realized, especially uh, last time I spoke, when I was summarizing all the other uh, um, other sermons that I did, I realized that it was taking way too much time. So if you want to hear the summaries of all the other ones that I've done, uh, just go find it on the podcast that we have for the church. So uh, just to kind of briefly go into uh, like a very short summary. So far, we talked about a man named Jonah. Jonah's name means what? Do you guys remember? Dove. I heard dove somewhere. All right. I like to say I heard dove somewhere. Okay, so dove, right? And it says Jonah son of Amittai, which is his father's name. And his father's name means faithfulness, right? Which is, he's everything but faithfulness, right? So he's the complete opposite of that. And we see this man completely contrary to his character of what God has called him to be, right? We see that his disobedience to God not only affected him personally as he went down into the depths of the, the, the ship and then eventually overboard and into the depths of the ocean, but his disobedience also crashed over onto the people that were around him. And we talked about that. Um, and then we talked about this ideal of Jonah being... Uh, Stuck in this perpetual motion, right? This ideal of spiritual apathy, where Jonah is completely toned out to what is going on around him, and it's clearly affecting not only himself, but the people all around him. And then two weeks ago, uh, we took a lot of time talking about this very small verse of the fish, um, and we talked about the significance of how the fish. Uh, and the people of Israel, there was a connection between being swallowed up by this fish and people of Israel being swallowed up and, and being caught into this, um, this encounter with God where mercy was needed, right? And we talked about mercy and we talked about this grace, uh, the very mercy that Jonah was supposed to take to the people of Nineveh. Uh, was the very mercy that he needed for himself. And we discovered that, and we ended two weeks ago with the ideal of uh, Jonah being vomited uh, onto dry land. And if you didn't know that the Bible talks about vomit, it does. And does anyone know, actually I was talking to um, two people yesterday about it, but does anyone know what the Hebrew word for vomit is? It's actually kind of funny. It's ka. It's supposed to be the sound you make when you vomit. I don't know if you guys sound like that when you vomit, but in biblical times, that's what they heard it to be. So it's ka, right? The word uh, for vomit. But anyways, if you want more substance, if you want more meat to the summary that I just gave, uh, feel free to listen to the podcast. So without further ado, let's just jump right into what we talked about this last week. But let's talk about um, Jonah chapter 3. And before we get into these pictures, let's just read... Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to get started. Now, we're in the second half of the book of Jonah. It's only four chapters, and we're in the second half now. And it says here, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Verse 2, Go to the great city uh, of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message 
I give you. So first of all, interesting thing before we continue. The second half of the book of Jonah begins the same way the first half of the book does, right? So the story of Jonah originally was what? It's about God trying to send a message to the Ninevites, right? But then in the first half of our story, we find that it's more about God not trying to send uh, a message to the Ninevites, but now it's trying to get a message across to the prophet Jonah, right? And so it's kind of this like funny, ironic kind of thing that we run into now where we it's like literally repeating the first half of the story. And so we see, oh, like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Like, the whole story was not about Jonah. It's supposed to be about the message of the Lord going to Nineveh, right? So we see this. Uh, and then verse 2, it says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it uh, and proclaim to it the message I give you. Uh, because, oh, sorry, not verse 2. Oh, Jonah 1, verse 2, when we look back at the original message, Jonah 1, verse 2, it says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So the whole idea of this story, the beginning of this story, starts off uh, that God is trying to go on this mission, right? This mission trip to Nineveh through the prophet Jonah. Because of what? Because of its wickedness. The language is, it can be quite disturbing, and we're going to discover a little bit more of this a little bit later as well. But it can be disturbing, because we look at this language of Jonah, or God wanting Jonah to preach some kind of, because of their wickedness, preaching against Nineveh, right? And it's something that you wouldn't want to put, like, on your fridge, like, as a magnet, right? Like, typically, like, this is not the kind of stuff we find in our Bible that we want to save and, and put up. And it's kind of this kind of language that a lot of people use to paint a picture of a God that is completely um, bloodthirsty and angry and not a very happy camper, right? This is the kind of language and kind of stuff that people pull to paint that picture. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But for now, uh, we'll just keep going. And the first part of this series, I talked a little bit about uh, the Ninevites, right? Do you guys remember, does anyone remember that? It's been a while now. Uh, but I briefly talked about the history of the Ninevite people. Uh, do you guys know what the capital of Nineveh is? Do you remember? Does anyone remember? Oh, yeah, it's the country of Assyria, right? So Nineveh is the capital of the country of Assyria. And at that time, we know, uh, based on history, that Assyria is known as, like, the biggest, the baddest. It's, like, terrible for what they do. They're known for their military conquest and also uh, the things that they would do to people. So historically, we know through history that the Assyrians were brilliant. They were just the smartest people, right? They would scout, they would be very familiar with unfamiliar lands, which is weird. Uh, when they would strategize for their battles, they would know the ins and the outs of, of the cities. It was like incredible, their military tactics, right? Their strength, their brilliance, uh, but also, like I said, their brutality. Uh, the things that they did to people is something that they were known for. So if you're a historian, if you're interested in history, if you're not, I'm so sorry. But if you're interested in history, I want to share a little bit with you to give you guys a little bit of a, a little insight about the Syrian Empire. Right. So uh, I feel like history, uh, when we look at history, it's like a gap right, between reality and the Bible. Which, I mean, yeah, as you can see, like when we look at the things that happen in history, I feel like there is this gap. Sometimes when you read the Bible... And at least for me, sometimes I read it and I forget, like, oh, yeah, this is the Bible, but this is also something that happened 
in our history. And when we look at history, uh, we see that there's a connection. And so hopefully this can uh, strengthen your faith. So let me give you a little history. Um, archaeologists discovered this thing uh, called the Assyrian Palace Walls, right? And it's interesting because on these walls, they would have depictions, right? They would have pictures of their military conquests and the things that they would do, which is super cool if you ask me, right? Um, and uh, it's called the Lachish Reliefs, okay? Lachish Reliefs. And so typically, uh, what the emperors would do is on each of these walls, uh, they would add, like, a story of their conquest and the things that they would do. Um, and if you look at this wall, it's like, it's in the British Museum if you ever go and want to see it in real life. But it's huge. It's like 39 feet wide, 17 feet long. And it shows uh, the victory, the Syrian victory over the kingdom of Judah that happened in 701 BC, right? In the town, small town of Lachish. And if you're like, oh, that's, that's cool, right? It's actually found, it's a story found in 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 18, where we see the siege of the story of Lachish. Now, anyways, uh, oh, yeah, over here. So there's some images here. I don't know if you can really tell and see, uh, but there's, like I said, some of the things that they would do that I talked about before. Uh, I don't think you can, it's not reflecting. The first picture on, the, uh, on your left, you see that there's like people, like dead people, impaled on these like these sticks, right? So you remember I told you that they would like take like people's loved ones and stuff and like put them on sticks and then have them march around the city. They would also one of the things that they would do for their military conquest is they would stick like comrades, like not their comrades, but the Israelite comrades on these sticks and then put them on the tops of the hills. And it's a way to like show like our this is our dominance, right? And so people at the bottom of the valley looking up into the hills, seeing their dead comrades stuck on these poles, like this is terrible, right? And you see in the picture on the right, they're like, you know, skinning people alive and and putting the, their skins on the walls. Like it's just terrible. This is the things uh, that they would record uh, on these walls. It's part of their conquest to show. Like, so if you were an Israelite soldier and you're walking into this, this, you know, the Lachish walls and you're looking at this, this is not good news, right? This is terrible news if you see this, right? And you're an Israelite and you're seeing this. Um, so anyways, it was like a sign of mockery and, and whatnot. And you might be wondering, okay, why do I bring this up again? For one, to strengthen your faith to show that there is a connection between the things that we see in the Bible and history. Uh, but more importantly, you have to understand the emotions that build up in the Israelites, right? When, when we see the story of Jonah, right? And when they hear about the Assyrians, right? This is a huge thing. And when they hear about the Ninevites, it's because it's like, there's a lot of emotion connected, right? Maybe their family, their loved ones, or people that they knew were affected by this. And we see a God here trying to send a prophet to confront these bad people, right? That do these terrible things to people, right? God is confronting them. So you can imagine the emotion. It's mixed emotions. Maybe emotions of fear, but also emotions of, yeah, like, go get them, Jonah. Like, now you can go and confront these bad people that have done bad things to us, right? So you see this emotion here. Now, we talked about before, like, the many reasons and why Jonah decided to run away, right? And I'm sure he could care less about these people because of the context and, and all the horrible things that they did. Um, but let's see what Jonah's response is now. Um, here, in chapter 3, verse 3, let's continue, okay? So Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord uh, and went to Nineveh, which is surprising, right? This is... Interesting. Jonah is now listening to God. Okay. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, um, and it took three days to go through it. 
And Jonah began going uh, a day's journey into the city, proclaiming uh, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. We'll pause here. Okay, so first of all, uh, it's like I said, it's new to see Jonah actually obeying God, like for the first time, right? He actually goes to the city of Nineveh and it's describing Nineveh. Uh, Jonah describes Nineveh as a very large city. Now, translations may say a very important city or a significant city, right? Uh, regardless of whether the city was big or small, uh, the city itself had much significance, right? And it took, it's of that much significance that it took him three days uh, to go through it. And then we find Jonah, he preaches uh, in English, it's what, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words. In the Hebrew, it's only five words. The five word uh, in Hebrew, I'm going to butcher it, so if anyone's a Hebrew scholar, I'm so sorry. Uh, it's Ot Ardebium Veneva Enet Paket, right? Does that sound right? Hebrew scholars? Okay. Five word sermon. A five-word sermon. 40 more days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Okay, first of all, this is the most successful five-word sermon ever, right? And I think it's interesting because we discover later in the story as we continue reading that the people turn from their ways, right? But what's more strange, uh, and I want to take a look at this a little bit, is the content of this five-word sermon that he has. He literally only says... Uh, 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. He gives the timeline and then the event of what is going to happen, right? 40 days, destruction, right? Overturn. And it's odd because God originally tells him to do what, right? To go and preach against its wickedness, which is what prophets normally did, would go and talk about the wickedness. But what prophets would do is come up or teach them a way of resolution, right? To turn back from their ways, so we find Jonah obeying God, in essence, by going, but not being so obedient when it comes to the message that he was supposed to share. Right? And I think we can all infer, because Jonah is a prophet of God, that we can, we can assume that Jonah would have to preach a little bit about who God is, right? He's being sent by God, so he would have to say something about God, but he doesn't, right? And then maybe talk about their wickedness, but he doesn't. Right? And how they should stop and what they're doing is wrong, but he absolutely doesn't. Right? Now, it brings a question, at least to me and maybe to you, and why Jonah would preach in this kind of unique, bizarre way to the Ninevite people. Right? One of the scholarly views, and this is the view that I think is most appropriate, uh, is because Jonah is actually trying to sabotage God's message. Right? Scholars believe that Jonah wasn't afraid to go because he went eventually. Right? It was more of the hatred that he had towards the Ninevite people for all the evil things he did. Right? So physically, Jonah is going. Right? He's going to Nineveh and following God's command, but verbally, he's distorting the message that God intended for the Ninevites so that it would ensure that they won't have the ability to repent and receive God's forgiveness and grace. Right? He leaves out all the important details of the message and limits it so that there's no chance. He's ensuring, or he wants to ensure, ironically doesn't work, but he wants to ensure that the Ninevites don't have a chance of repentance. Right? And I think this is the most consistent with the character of Jonah. Okay? So, anyways, despite Jonah's sabotage, we find that uh, God is a God that finds his way, and the sermon is a hit, right? The five-word sermon is a hit. And then we see in verse 5, uh, the Ninevites... What do they do? They believe God. Right? The Ninevites believed God 
A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, first of all, Jonah didn't say anything about God, but the Ninevites are so attuned to what's going on. They understand what's going on, that the first thing they say, or the first thing they do, is they believe in God, right? And they're filling in all these gaps, right, that Jonah is completely leaving out. And they're just like, dude, like, yeah, like, we know what's wrong. And they turn to God. Now, fasting, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the idea of uh, fasting. Uh, but fasting is this kind of outward action, right, of abstaining from things like food, certain foods, or just certain things in order to show, like, your seriousness, right? That's kind of the whole idea of why fasting was a thing. It's like setting aside the distractions of life, focusing in on God. This is the ideal of a fast, and this is what they're doing. And sackcloth is this very coarse, rough fabric, right? That's usually made from goat hair, uh, and it's usually worn during times of mourning, uh, social protests, things of that nature. And it was an outward sign of your seriousness, right? So I think this is interesting, and this is kind of like a little detour of what I wanted to talk about. But we notice here uh, this ideal of belief, right? So the Ninevites believed God, and immediately after that, it says, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, for the greatest least, put on sackcloth, right? I think this conception uh, of belief is a little skewed. Um, Belief isn't just a thought thing, right? I could believe that Glendale Korean Church has the best tasting food, right? But if I don't eat that food, uh, the belief doesn't seem as real, right? And I think in Western culture, we have a tendency to to paint this picture of a belief as, yeah, I believe. I believe that, you know, Glendale Korean has the best food. I believe that California is the greatest state to be. I believe, I believe, I believe. Uh, But if I don't, in my actions, show that Glendale Korean food's potluck is the best by eating it, if I don't eat it, if I don't live in California and I, like, you know, talk about how terrible the heat is and how California is like not the place you want to be, right? Then clearly we see there's a there's a there's a something's wrong, right? Do you guys see that? Okay. And I think in biblical culture, belief always invokes action, right? We see here the Ninevites believed God, and then what did they do? To express that belief, they proclaim a fast. They fast and then they put sackcloth on, right? And I think that's interesting because we You know, to make it real in the Christian walk, we believe in God. We say we believe in God. But how often, and how often does the world look at the church and say, like, yeah, do you really, though? Do you really believe in God? Now, I'm not saying actions is everything, okay? But I think it's a very important part of the belief that we have as a church, right? Anyways, that's just a little side note. Verse 6, let's keep going. When Jonah's warning reached the king, of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took all his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animal, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. You see, this is right here, belief in action. Do you guys see that, right? Verse 8. But God, or but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Yes, this is crazy. Do you guys see this? There's this all of a sudden change of heart uh, from the king of Nineveh. And the key word that I want to focus on today, uh, it's in verse 8. It says... 
in NIV, uh, which is the version up here, says to give up their evil ways. The English Standard Version says to turn, off, turn from their ways. Uh, and the Hebrew word for that uh, is shuv, which is the title of the, the subtitle of my message today. Um, and in English, it's literally translated as to turn around, to change direction, or to repent. So this word, this Hebrew word, comes from uh, the ideal of walking, right? So if I'm walking uh, and I see a sign that clearly says that there's a ledge, like, don't go over that. Uh, in my mind, there is this judgment that is rendered, right? Oh, there's a cliff, like, I shouldn't go over that. And in that action, you are shoving. You shove and you go the other direction, right? This is the Hebrew language for the word shove. Um, so when you shove, it's literally this ideal of turning around, right? And you go the other direction. So we see this theme in the Bible, and in particular, the prophets, uh, and they take this image, and it's a super powerful image and a metaphor and how we are to relate to God. So follow through with me. As we walk through the Christian life, right, through the Christian walk, we go down many different paths, right? And the prophet's job would be to speak to the people, to us, and to tell us, hey, dude, you're going the wrong way, okay? You need to shove so you can turn back to the Father, right? When we go down the wrong path, the prophet's job is to tell us to shove, to turn around, to repent, okay? So look at verse 9, right? And this is something quite confusing, and we talked about it a few weeks ago at the beginning of our message, but we see in verse 9 the response of the king, and this is what he says. He says, God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so we will not perish. Now, this, at least for me, this always gets people, right? Uh, and we, we run into this wall and we see a picture of God who is angry, who is bloodthirsty, who is wanting to inflict punishment, God laying down his divine judgment for people's wrong actions, right? We see this. And it's like, how do we explain this? And I think in my Christian walk, I would run into stuff like this and just kind of brush it away, right? And I've, you know, I struggled with it for a long time, and maybe you're struggling with it too, or maybe you have struggled with it. But this is what we're trying to figure out, okay? We need to find a way to connect the different characters and the attributes of God to make this coherent single picture rather than trying to paint multiple pictures of, of who God is, okay? So uh, we see the language of God being a God of judgment all over the Old Testament. That's where it's predominantly found, right? And a lot of the times, we, some of the things that we find, uh, we see it now as, oh, like, there's nothing wrong with that, like... Uh, but then God comes along and says, well, no, that's wrong. You can't be doing that, right? And so that's judgment, right? We see God doing this. And then this conflicts with the ideal, uh, the very contrasting view of God that we find in the New Testament, particularly through the life of Jesus Christ, right? And we see, you know, 1 John 4, 6 says that God is love, right? So we, we see the contrasting image. Do you guys see that contrasting image? Is it just me? Okay, okay. So we struggle to point... Um, or the struggling point for many Christians here uh, would be, well, I don't really like the God of judgment one, so let me just choose the God of love. And we have a tendency to screen out one or the other, right? Uh, typically, you know, not the judgment one. We don't really focus on that. Uh, if you don't want any friends, then you could go to like, you know, a place and be like, hey, you know about the God of judgment? Like, he wants to judge you. Like, no one's going to like that, right? You can lose all your friends really quick if, if that's what you wanted. We tend to focus on the idea of God as love. Uh, but if we pick and choose which God we want to talk about, then clearly there's a problem, right? Uh, and I hope you can see that that's an issue. Okay? To neglect or even to say that one is not true and the other is, uh, 
we run into too many conflicts then in the Bible. So the common misconception of this, that God is a God of love and God is a God of judgment, we see these as opposites. Okay? Maybe you have that, that kind of uh, thought process. It's like, how can a God that loves me judge me, right? And it's not loving. We think like, that's not loving, right? To judge is not a loving thing to do. God can't judge and condemn and say that he loves me. Now, what do we mean when we say that God is a loving God that wouldn't judge or condemn me? Okay? I, want, I want to think through with this a little bit with you guys. Okay? Regardless of whether you see yourself as a religious person, uh, how spiritual you may feel or not feel, okay, I think we can all agree that the world that we live in is truly a, like a messed up place to live. Right? It's a terrible place. There's so much of, you know, poverty. There's there's. There's hunger, there's, you know, world disasters and and just evil and violence all over this world. Can we agree? Amen? Right? We can agree that that's the world that we live in. Um, Imagine with me, okay? So God looks at this world. God looks at all the 7.7 billion people on this earth and sees us living in this, this evil world, doing all these terrible things. And God looking at that, let's say he sees it and he responds saying like, oh, you human beings, like, you silly humans, like, you just, you, you cute little things, right? Going about killing people and whatever. I, I'm just going to cut them some slack because I love them. I love them, so just, I'll let them keep doing their evil, terrible things, right? Now, is that, is that really the image of love, okay? Is that really the loving thing to do? A God that simply cuts us slack for the evil that happens in this world. And I like to argue absolutely not. That's definitely not the loving thing to do. You see, the opposite of judgment isn't love. That's not, they're not opposites. The opposite of judgment is apathy or the ideal of this lack of interest or indifference with people. That's the opposite of, of judgment. Right? So what is the loving thing to do? Okay, let me give you a silly example. Okay, let's say for example, uh, Josh over here, okay, you see me coming over to Josh and just like picking on him, right? I start like punching him, taking his money, you know, take his glasses, throw it out the window, right? You see me doing all of that. Uh, you know, his offering money that he put here, I take it and pocket it for myself, right? Okay, maybe going a little too far, right? Okay, so if you saw me doing that, and let's just say you walked by, let's say you walked by and you saw this action happening, as I was taking the money from him, making him write my sermons and polishing my shoes and all this great stuff, okay? What would the right thing to do? What would be the right thing to do in that situation, right? Oh, pastors would be pastors. Oh, Josh is fine, right? No, right? The right thing to do would be to render a judgment, okay, on that behavior, right? You would come up to me and be like, Pastor Tim, that is the wrong thing to do. That is not the right thing. Rather, it's the wrong thing to do. If you were to see that and simply brush it off, uh, then my goodness, right? Like, please. God forbid, like, if you guys see me beating up on a kid, please stop me. Please come and render a judgment, right? Show me what I think is right is actually wrong, okay? So you see, this is where the money's at, okay? Judgment is not the opposite of love. Judgment is an expression of love, okay? You see, when you render a judgment on Pastor Tim, okay, you're loving little Josh, okay, from the bully, right? You're loving the community here at church by setting an example of this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And you're loving even me by stopping me from this toxic behavior of bullying little kids like Josh, right? Judgment is the loving thing to do, right? Judgment is an expression of God's love, okay? 
Judgment and love are the two sides of the same coin. Okay? They work hand in hand. And that's so important that we remember that when we look at the Bible and we see these instances of judgment, right? Okay. Now, uh, we talk about judgment, and this is also a little bit of a side thing that I want to kind of briefly get into. Uh, well, yeah, okay. So when we talk about judgment, uh, when we inflict judgment on like other people around us and stuff like that, and we see that going, we're like, yeah, like you get it, right? Well, the book of Amos, you know, the prophet Amos is talking about all the, the judgment God is afflicting to the neighbors and then winds down to the Israelites. Kind of like that, right? We see that, we're like, yeah, yeah. And then when it points to us, we're like, no, no, not me, right? And we get all defensive and stuff like that. Um, and we find ourselves in a bind because we're faced with this issue, right, that that wait, why, why judgment? Like, when it's to me, like, no, like, I don't want to deal with it. But when it's to other people, it's like, yeah, like, judgment on that person. Uh, I gave an example at a Bible study this past week about, um, do you guys know the unspoken rule in K-Town? When you're driving in K-Town? Okay, maybe this is not unspoken rule, maybe I just made this up. But you know how like there's always like lots of cars in Cape Town. It's like super hectic, and you know if you're driving, you want to take a left, but there's oncoming traffic. Like there's so many cars that even if it's like green, yield on green, it's like impossible to get through, right? So the unspoken rule is when it turns red, like two cars just go. You guys know that rule? Is that just me? Okay, I, sorry, I made a mistake. Okay, so uh, when when I see people doing that, right? Now let's just say I'm on the, the parallel side of traffic and I'm trying to get through traffic and some person does that. You know, red light, two people go and they're like blocking like the entire intersection, right? It's like, Hong Kong, get out of the way, what are you doing, right? And the, but the one out, I'm the one that's doing it in K-Town and I'm like halfway in the intersection. It's like, well, you know, I didn't have a choice. Like it's either I'm here or like, you know, I came out too far and then we try to justify uh, the judgment, right? It's like, no, like, you know, I, I didn't do anything wrong. Like I'm just trying to get to, to the place I need to go. The unspoken rule, remember? Two cars on a red. Like, not everyone follows that. Do you, guys, do you guys see that? Okay. You see, this is the thing about judgment. When it comes to accepting judgment, when we need to accept God's judgment, this is an act of belief, right? It's an act of faith because it's ultimately coming down to this. When we see judgment from God and we have like struggles with it, it's about saying, okay, my judgment call, which I think is best, is far less superior than God's judgment call. This is the whole ideal of, of faith and belief. And this is why I talked about earlier why belief is so important, right? Belief is not just something we say. Belief is something that we do, right? It's something that we have to act. And in that sense, we have to surrender our judgment call for God's superior judgment call, right? We may see things and be like, God, like, come on, like, that's not fair. Like, really? Like, you could have, you really had to do that? Like, why couldn't you do something else? But that's the whole ideal of faith and belief. It's taking that, that, that step back and saying, you know, I surrender my judgment for God's ultimate judgment. Like, God, you know what's best, right? Okay, anyways, so if God's judgment is an expression of his love, what's the purpose? What's the point of God giving this particular judgment, right? Is it to, is it to make us miserable? I hope not, right? Look at verse um, 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So you see, out of God's love, for his people, right? Out of love, God looks at these Ninevites, right? And he sees their wickedness, and he sees them falling away from the truth, right? From what is right, and he sees this city filled with wickedness. And God renders a judgment, 
on that behavior. And then the people of Ninevite, what do they do? When the, rend the judgment is rendered, the people of Ninevite shuv, they turn from their ways. And what do they find? They find the compassion of God. Or in other words, what they're finding is grace. Right? This, is, this is the beautiful thing. Because the ultimate goal of when we see God's judgment is to show us that, yes, we're going the wrong way. And he wants to show us this beautiful thing called grace and mercy, and which ultimately leads back into his love. Do you guys see that with me? You see, if the book of Jonah ended with chapter 3, then we would have been like, yay, hooray, like God is, is wonderful and great. But we're going to discover next why, why it doesn't end here, uh, why it continues. Um, but now, with this kind of, to wrap up the sermon today, we may run into the question of, okay, uh, we are rendered a judgment from God, and because an expression of God's love, and then we encounter this ideal called grace, but a lot of the times we find ourselves falling back and making the same mistakes, going back in the wrong direction, turning around, and it's like this never-ending cycle, right? So what's the good news of all of this? Well, this is what I believe. That these three things here, love, judgment, and grace, these three attributes of God are connected by what Jesus did on the cross. And I want to make this connection for you because, you see, the cross is a statement of God's love, right? His love for us and everything that he did for us. But it's also a statement of his judgment, right? The wages of sin is death. But the cross also is an opportunity for us to receive the grace and the mercy of God. To receive this eternal life so we can come back to the Father, right? And isn't that beautiful? If we see it this way, and we see judgment as the same side of the coin as love, we see that the whole purpose of why God does this, and why we see a God of judgment and some kind, sometimes a scary God, it's because his ultimate purpose and his goal is to bring us back into grace, back into the Father's love. Right? So I pray that when we look at this beautiful, very confusing, mysterious theme of, of shuving or repenting, turning away from the wrong path, and heeding the judgment, that we remember that the reason why this happens and why we, we encounter this, this judgment is so that we can be turned back into the grace of God and that God can bring us back into his love.